0: and welcome to the Temple of Blair, episode U. Uh, It's another entry into the history of Roadrunner Records. This time I'm speaking with Richard Bengloff. Now, Richard is an an amazingly interesting character, uh, and his particular chapter in this story is uh, when he was the chief financial officer of Red Relativity Entertainment Distribution, Uh, between 1991 and 1993. So uh, Red were the distributors of uh, Roadrunners' records, no pun intended, across the uh, North American territories. Um, If you recall from previous episodes, we talk about when Holly and Steve set up the US office. It was off the back of a deal with Important Records. That's who was going to distribute those records in North America. That's where the foothold starts. Um, Important then turns into Red, So that's where Richard stands in. And it's an incredibly interesting dude. Um, In fact, let me just give you a quick sort of rundown of his um, his CV, effectively. So uh, from Red, he was uh, vice president of the distribution operations at Sony, the senior vice president and chief financial officer of Warner Music Group and Electra Music Group, Electra Entertainment Group, sorry. Uh, Moving on, president of the American Association of Independent Music, um, representing all kinds of independent labels the guy's an absolute titan of the industry and he really gives me an education as to how that side of the business works uh, so you'll be seeing a lot more of this kind of conversation going on for this podcast if it's not for you and you like to stick with the music stuff that's cool man, let's, let's move on but if you like to get in the weeds with me get out your calculators and crack on and join me for a lovely conversation with the amazing and mighty Richard Bengloff 1, 2, fuck shit up <laughs>
1: Okay, here we there go. There we uh, go. Right. How, what are you doing, Jim?
0: <laughs> Not too bad, Richard yourself. Good. Where are you? I'm um, just outside Old York
1: in the North Wing. Okay. Okay. I myself. Sorry. I'm in New York City. Right but, bang in the middle? Uh, What? Right bang in the middle of the city or are you uh, I'm in I'm actually in Lower Manhattan. Uh I don't know if you've ever been to New York, but uh it's more of a neighborhood than you would think of when you think of Manhattan. Not big buildings, little buildings. I'm fascinated and by the, Manhattan just because of the grid
0: layout. The only grid layout we see in Europe is um, some of the old fort cities like the ones in Malta. And I haven't been yeah. to New York. Um, I, I nearly went a few years ago, but I, I'm, I'm keen
1: to see the layout. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's more of a neighborhood that you would envision. Uh, I actually grew up here, so uh, it's... Uh, yeah, you know, there's the local pizzeria and there's the local supermarket and it has more of a neighborhood feel than a New York City feel. Yeah, <laughs> good stuff. I'll, I'll just give you a bit of a uh, some of the context on the on the
0: project that I'm working on. Um, but I do appreciate you sort of clarifying your relationship with the label. Um, you know, pr- prior to setting up the meeting. So what the the idea behind this project for me is I'm I'm interviewing people who had any kind of relationship with the business side of road because I'm trying to figure out um, the label itself had, a, had a, a particularly strong impact on me as a brand because I'm a metal guy. Um, and the lifespan of that label from eight, uh, 1980 to 2012 as an independent, it, it was it just intrigues me as to how it did what it did because metal is a fringe genre as it stands. Um, and Roderick was, it certainly had an, ident- uh, an identity, unlike say conglomerates that had metal bands like your EMIs and, and maybe even your virgins and things like that. So I'm trying to, Untangle how it happened. Was it an accident? Was it meticulous design by a case that we had like a really strong metal brand which had the impact and the value that it did? And the reason I'm, I'm intrigued from your perspective, Richard, is simply because I've been binging on the A2IM interviews and, and conference um, keynote speeches and things like that. And I feel like one of the peripheral questions I'm trying to answer is what is the value of a label? And I feel that's right in your wheelhouse um, so I thought if I could split it into sort of two bits, really. One is, let's talk about Roadrunner, your memories of that time. And then another one is just, let's pretend we're in kindergarten and some kids just asked you how distribution
1: works and why this stuff is is kind of important. If, if, if well, that's true. Uh of course, whatever you'd like. But uh, I, I guess I, I, I also, uh, I'm retired, but uh, I still teach and I teach the music industry. Uh, and what I do is old school, new school. So, so maybe that's the best way to, for my students, uh, I teach at a couple of universities here in New York city part time. And, uh, it, it's probably the best way to explain the industry then and the industry now, uh, and, and how things have changed. Uh, it, it's funny because Nowadays, when you hear about music labels, you always hear the phrase of branding, because mm-hmm. everything's oriented to branding nowadays. Uh, I never heard that phrase ever uh, 30 years ago uh, in, in terms of the only times you hear branding is when we were talking about some food item yeah, or, yeah. or something of that type. Uh, but it wasn't really marketing, but but it was a brand. And, uh, and, and Roadrunner was very much a brand at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I guess starting even one step before that, uh, back then, now everybody has access, right? You, mm-hmm. you go on the internet, you could talk directly with your fans. You, the last five years, you could talk back and forth with your fans like a Taylor Swift does or any metal band. Metallica does, yeah. uh, to, talks to their fans. And. Um, Back then, uh, there really was no internet to speak of in the early 90s. Uh, Email really didn't start taking off until the middle 90s. -hmm. And uh, so you had no direct access to your fans. There were four things that were important if you were a music label to be able to make a living. Uh, One was to get radio play. Uh, which was somewhat more limited to for uh, metal because of the nature of some of the lyrics and, and everything else, but but it had its niches and it had shows. Sou was a, a huge station here in the New York market, uh, and it was very important. Uh, second was to get press. Uh, third was to tour, which is the only time you really had direct contact with your fans, but you had to let them know when you were going to tour, mm. so you had to do that through the press, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have known. I mean, it's it's sort of archaic, kind of cute, I guess, at this point. We used to send postcards out when, when the bands were going out again. I mean, in addition to IRD being a distributor, which was started by an Englishman. I don't even know if you're aware of that. It was a company called Pinnacle, a oh, really? fellow by the name of Steve Mason in the U.K., Pinnacle's the name of the company, uh, was exporting music to the US Uh, and was selling through what was called called rack jobbers back then, not rack jobbers, but uh, one stops, selling to one stops. And after a while, Steve Mason said, gee, instead of me going through these one stops, maybe I should just start my own distribution company in the United States. Mm. And he did, and that distributor was important record distributors. Uh, which Steve owned up until uh, about 1990, when I first okay. came in yeah. this uh, Pinnacle, team. Pinnacle was a major British uh, music company. Not major in terms of universal music, or, but what I'm yeah. saying is, of the independents, Pinnacle was a very big name. Okay. And um, so he started the company, and they hired a fellow by the name of Barry Coburn, who was one of the buyers at the one stop he was selling to, to uh, start the uh, important record distributors for, him. I guess it was back in 1979. so mm-hmm. it was quite a while ago. And uh, but back then, so you had to get on the radio, you had to get publicity, you know press, which weren't blogs. It was physical press at the time. Yeah. You had to tour. And the last thing you needed was distribution. And distribution today is is more of a commodity, right? I mean, for under $100, you can get on every, you know, you can get on Spotify, and you can get on Apple, and you can get on Amazon, you can get on all the different services around the world, you know, Boomplay in Africa, and and GG, uh, QQ Music in China, etc. Uh, but back then, there were barriers to entry. So distribution was very, very important. Uh, there were six major label distributors back then. Today, there's only three. Okay. And there really were two major independent distributors, important record distributors and Caroline, which was also a British company, which interestingly enough, uh so both so both of the uh independent distributors were spin-offs affected. Caroline was started by Richard Branson, that's a name you're familiar oh, yeah. with. <laughs> so uh And and both still exist today. Uh, Red is, you know, IRD morphed into Red and is now part of a company called The Orchard. But, um, and then then now there's others because there's less barriers to entry. And and you got known as certain brands. And IRD, for whatever reason, they had their own label called Relativity. Yeah. And and the Relativity label had bands like Corrosion of Conformity. You familiar with them? That's one of my favorite bands. Yeah, I've actually like I'm not a big metalhead, but I used to go see the Axe. Uh, we uh, and and a whole bunch of metal brands evolved during that period. Roadrunner was one of them in the 80s. Combat, this is leading up to yeah, when I get involved. Yep. Metal Blade. Yep. Uh, Century Media. Oliver Whithoff may he rest in peace was actually a close friend of mine for a long period of time. One of the two founders with Robert Kampf of uh, Century Media Records. And these and these were brands. We didn't call them brands back then, but but the kids. If I went to a show for Cannibal Corpse, mm-hmm. they they might as well have been wearing a Metal Blade t-shirt as well as as much as a Cannibal Corpse t-shirt. Yeah. And through a fellow by the name of Alan Becker, who you must speak to, who uh, was was really the the key person at uh, IRD Red for getting these labels and retaining labels and effectively he was an artist and repertoire person for labels. He would do an assessment as to whether or not the label was an appropriate label to bring in. Are they going to be successful? Are they not going to be successful? Uh, and then he'd do the relationships and then he'd actually do A&R for the labels. They'd send him copies of tapes and CDs to listen to if he thought they were if you hear me
0: tapping, and I'm just taking notes because these are these are awesome questions for Alan as well. Like, how would he assess them? What kind of stuff was it in, in, when the Roadrunner gig started and things like that? So, if you if you hear me tapping away, I am just taking notes.
1: But but I, I'd say the leader, not because of what you're doing the study, but I'd say the leader of independent uh, metal music was certainly Roadrunner. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the obituaries, the Dio sides, the Life of Agony. Uh, they just, Sepultura, of course, which which was their biggest artist. And it's funny, you talk about metal. The majors really didn't know what to do with it. I had alluded to it in the uh, email I sent you. They upstreamed uh, what, a Sepultura record for a lot of money case yep. to Epic Records, and Epic Records really didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so it got yeah. sent back down. I think the,
0: uh, the story behind that was... Um...
1: Savotero so just
0: thought they should try it out and see if they got a different experience. And then the champion um at the label um at Epic, as sometimes it is with major levels, there was a revolving door and he was championing them on the Friday, but he was out the door on the Monday, so they were like, Oh, I guess we're stuck in an album cycle with Epic with no one. Well, took-
1: well, I, I can actually share with you because I, I became the chief financial officer of Sony Music Distribution, <laughs> and I can tell you they didn't know they wouldn't have known what to do with it. <laughs> if he was there, wasn't there, it, re- it really wouldn't have made that big a deal. You know. Fair enough. If Felix had grandeur as, as to what he would do, but he should have always stayed and did, and then he went to, I guess, Soulfly was the group that was the spinoff. Yeah. yeah. I'm not a metal fan, but I do know the history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, But distribution was very important, and, and it was very archaic back then. We used to literally buy the CDs and tapes. We just distribute them. In other words, Roadrunner would sell us a CD for $6.
0: Right.
1: We'd sell it to a retailer for $7.50. And the retailer would turn around and sell it for $11.98 in the U.S. market. You know, U.S. dollars I'm talking about in this uh, example that I'm sharing. Let's
0: let's let's strip this entire bit back. This is exactly the question I was going to ask. Like the life cycle of a record through a distribution arm, because one thing that Roadrunner was, one thing I did do is crunch the numbers against Metal Blade, Combat, SPV, neat records, and one thing Roadrunner had in spades ever since the start of um, their tenure in 1980 was, in terms of actual products going out the door doesn't matter about direct signings um, or otherwise in terms of actual collateral going out the door and making the money they were always miles ahead of everyone else i think the closest- no question yeah and it, and it, i think they didn't even think about direct signings until about 1983 so they had three years of just churning out records just churning them out so i'll be interested knowing that that's where the main revenue stream is coming from and continued really up until about 2012, that it still did a lot of the, the heavy lifting on distribution up until the, um, the end of their independent era. Let's, let's, let's do a model. Um, let's say I'm Case and I'm coming to you saying, I've got, actually, let's start from the very start. When the arrangement happens, is Red under an obligation to distribute anything that Roadrunner throws at them?
1: Uh, yes, uh, there, there was never a problem with you know the, the the material. Certain retailers, there were rack jobbers, for example, who uh, rack jobbed Walmart, which is still is the biggest uh, chain here in the United States. Yeah. And, and, and if there was an artist like Brujeria, I don't know if you know who they are. <laughs> with the yeah. cover with the guy's head cut off, mm-hmm. Walmart wouldn't carry that. Uh, right. So... Right. so uh, but otherwise, everyone would carry... Everyone would carry everything that was put out. Occasionally, they'd have to put out a, a version with this explicit lyrics stinker. Mm. I don't know if you've seen those. The PMRC um, advisory yeah. stuff, yeah. Yes, uh, explicit lyric. Well, no, no. It would... They do it. We do a separate version, but Roadrunner knew the kids didn't want that version, so we wouldn't put that version out. Uh, yeah. but, I mean, the key guy for Roadrunner at the time, Case, was very involved. Yeah. <clears throat> Number one, they could afford to do everything because they were the first one who understood the international scope of what was going on. I don't know if it was because they were based in Europe mm-hmm. originally, but they had the most extensive label network, so they had really leveraged themselves, right? You know, yeah. they knew they were going to sell a certain amount in Australia, New Zealand, a certain amount in Japan, a certain amount in Europe, a certain amount in South America. So that's where they were always going to be profitable. Yeah. While the U.S. may have been their largest market, they had enough in the other markets. It was almost like insurance against a failure. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they had the brand. So whatever they put out, everyone was interested in. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and, there was, and and the key guy on their end, sort of a different skill set than Alan Becker on the red side, is Doug Keough, who was their general manager for many, many years. Yeah. And, and Doug had a great, in addition to being a huge fan of the music, and understanding what would sell and what wouldn't sell, Doug also had, had and has, he and I are still friends to this day, an uncanny business sense Mm. uh, of what should be done. And it's funny because the first time I met with Case and Doug was in 1990. And uh, they were going to leave uh, IRD Red. Uh, They weren't getting paid on a timely basis because the way it worked is that we were buying CDs, sets, whatever it was, and we were supposed to pay them within 60 days. And all of a sudden, we were paying them in 90 days, 100 days, 120 days. So they weren't getting paid. And I said, well, this is insanity. We can't pay you for the inventory that's sitting on our shelves. And we're not getting paid by the retailers for 60, 90 days. So I, I literally was with uh, IRD Red for less than a week when I had that first meeting with uh, Casey and Doug. <laughs> And, uh, and found that we had to redo our deal. And, and they were, they're, they're both great guys, mm-hmm. businessmen, but, but also human beings. They Sometimes they both don't mesh. And uh, they, uh, we had a patience. I put in the contract that if we didn't fulfill what we said we were going to do, we had no systems. There were, there were a lot of problems with the IRD back then. Uh, they can get out of the contract. Mm-hmm. And which they didn't have to do because we did fulfill uh, the systems and the payment terms and the distribution that we had, and, and we switched from a method of of buying CDs to just give us your CDs on consignment. Okay, we'll ship them to stores. When we bill them, we'll pay you within a certain number of days after we do the billing, and then it's our problem to collect them.
0: The, the interesting it's thing... This may be
1: too mundane for you, I apologize.
0: No, no, this is exactly what I'm wanting to talk about. I'm a very mundane okay. person. My background's in uh, intellectual property and copyright law. So this stuff to me is is fascinating. So the the way in my head, when I was trying to sort of paint a picture in my mind of how that relationship would work, I always assumed that it would be the label contracting a distributor to, to fulfill... Um, you know, a distribution of a certain uh, a product, and then make some money. You know, off off the on the dollar on that. I didn't think it was. How do I how to describe it? I thought the label was vending a service from the distributor, not the distributor buying a product from the label. If that makes sense, I always thought that the distributor would handle the manufacturing and distribution. But it sounds like what you're saying is a distributor would actually take the brick and mortar, the actual product and then deal with it themselves.
1: Right. What What you're describing, th- there were two types of deals. I oh, love this. W- one was a distribution deal. Mm-hmm. So our distribution deal with Roadrunner Records was, if we bill $10 for a CD, mm-hmm. we're going to keep 16% of that, which was a great rate, but they were a great label. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would remit the other 84 cents to them mm-hmm. for every dollar that we sold. Mm-hmm. They would manufacture the CDs, cassettes, and the music. Mm-hmm. They would deliver them to our warehouse. Mm-hmm. Our warehouse would then keep the in inventory. We'd get orders from physical retailers like Tower Records that no longer exist. Mm-hmm. We would ship the appropriate amount of those recordings to the retailers because what they don't sell they can return they have a hundred percent return privileges still oh, to this day okay so the risk was roadrunners but we as their good partner don't want to ship too much but you want to ship enough so that when they uh walk into the store and they want typo negative it's not just in the browser under the letter t mm-hmm. you know they have a stack of maybe 10 of them so in a, in a way that's an advertisement right Oh yeah. look, there's there's ten of those sitting there. Flip it over. Oh, there's that Roadrunner logo, or there's that Century Media logo, or, or there's that Metal Blade logo. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we actually uh, as part of our label, not as a distributor, had Earache back then. Right. Cool. And, and uh, in addition to Combat, which was our own uh, label, as you note, mm-hmm. but noted earlier. But uh, so we 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 did all these things. And that and that was the method. The other type of deal was called a pressing and distribution deal. Mm-hmm. In that case, we would manufacture on someone else's behalf, because they didn't. Yeah, maybe they were just a A&R, A and a talent, you know, A and R artist and repertoire. I'm sure you know what that means. Uh, yeah. We they yeah. would be a a, a a they were really an A and R source, and they would do marketing, but they didn't know. They didn't want to be involved in the back room, the day-to-day. So we would press. But then we may charge them a 25% fee, in addition to the cost of whatever it is it cost us to manufacture. And we got better manufacturing rates because we made a lot of CDs. And, and I guess I mean, to- that's
0: easier for you guys, though, because Relativity and Important were one in the same, are they? Whereas not every not every label had its own distribution built
1: in. Yeah, well, there was... As I said, there were really only ourselves and Caroline were the two main distributors back then because most people didn't have relationships with uh, with the retailers. Yeah. And the retailers didn't want to open up new relationships. They wanted to deal with a small group of distributors, because mm-hmm. you know, they didn't want to get involved in dealing with 100 different people buying yeah. their music from. They wanted to deal with 10 people, 12 people. There were others, smaller ones, Cargo. But, uh, so, in a way, when when Roadrunner was going to leave, one of the places they were looking at was one of the majors, and they had actually gotten into negotiations with them, but they were afraid for IRD Red, they were our most important distributed label. Right, okay. Uh, For uh, a lot of distribution back then wasn't exclusive either. Uh, a lot of times it was split up between uh, Caroline would distribute the same ones as we distributed. Yeah. Roadrunner was an exclusive uh, relationship. And uh, so that's – those are the two type of deals. We, we really didn't like doing pressing and distribution deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we preferred to just be a distributor and focus on uh, working with the accounts Coordinating the label's marketing.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. it's kind of like, that's a really important point of how on the distribution deal, um, the manufacturing would come from the label side because that means Roadrunner can decide on their own margins on the manufacturing. Like, for example, in, in the typo negative sense where they were very meticulous about their artwork, everything had to be green and black and a, a particular shade of green. Obviously, Doug's there going, all right, well, why buy cyan ink when we can buy green ink? and we could save yes. some money on that. And then once you make, save 10 cents per CD and you sell a, a million, you've, ser- you've saved $100,000. No back.
1: question. Doug, Doug was is. He's still around. He's retired as well. Yeah. But uh, was really smart about how much he spent on the artwork, you know, what you yeah. just described. Mm-hmm. Uh, but was also a very kind of artist relations, as we all had to be. Mm-hmm. And, and was also Roadrunner was also excellent. Um, Jonas, uh, who became the general manager after Doug, uh, was the head of marketing, and he was excellent. And Jonas would coordinate. You know, here's what we're doing, and these they're going on tour, so make sure these markets that there's plenty of music available in the stores for those markets, or here's where we're getting radio play. So based on that radio play, you know, it all has to be coordinated or you waste a lot of money. To yeah, your point, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. just the 10 cents, which is very important. You're talking to the CFO, remember. <laughs> but, uh, but but in addition to that was if you're going to spend money on marketing, you want to make sure you get a bang for your buck. Yeah, And you want to make sure, which was very different than now, because now you know what happens the next day because so much of it's via social media, mm-hmm. which is great. In terms of market efficiency, you could see what's going on where, which parts of the country, who the audience is, what their zip codes are in the US. Uh, back then, you you were relying more on uh, radio play, uh, where it was starting to sell, replenishing the inventory, where the tour is going, what magazines, you know, again, we didn't have direct relationship with the fans. Uh, we used to buy a lot of uh, Gu- guitar world ads. To announce when new records were coming out. Now you don't have to do that anymore. You just, mm. you know, go on social media and let everyone know it's going out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People tend to
0: pick their um, their information streams more specifically, which I guess is sometimes a challenge. Um, and again, when we when I was talking about what's the value of a label, it's uh, maybe we'll come to this on another further down the line. But today, when it's when there's a more DIY aspects for For bands, as you sort of said, you can just do everything on social media and the analytics are there straight away. I'm kind of coincidence, I'm empathizing with labels a lot more. When the typical default position of a DIY band is, well, the, the label's just a middle manager. And you think, well, it's now I'm thinking it's not a middle manager. It's a room full of absolute experts who are responding to the market with the correct vocabulary and the correct lexicon immediately to understand how they can reverse engineer your particular band and create a product and make it actually viable that's what i think labels do if you were to say what are they, what what does a label actually do and why is it important these days and i think it's the the answer is they understand more I under, and they can kind of understand what it is you're trying to sell
1: i think uh, i would say th- th- absolutely uh if you remind me i, I teach and one of my classes is do you need a label what, what do you get and what do you give away if you remind me i'll send you the piece of paper i share with my students yes. uh, but but uh but more than that before it used to be getting you on the radio right because sou was a big metal station here in the new york market but unfortunately they only have 168 hours in their week and and you don't want 30 of them because people are sleeping. Although with metal, maybe it's only 20 that people are sleeping. <laughs> and uh, But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And it's relationships to get on the radio. Taylor Swift wouldn't be Taylor Swift if if she didn't get on the radio, which, which still labels get you on the radio, which you couldn't do for yourself. Uh, that's old school and new school. The new school is, is the uh, Spotify, Apple, Amazon playlists, the editorial. Mm-hmm. How do you get on those playlists? And the great thing about those nowadays is in addition to getting exposure and marketing, you're also getting money because each time someone streams that list, you're getting your half a penny. Uh, and uh, so so twofer, which is great. There, there's a long list. Metal was different because it was more of a niche. Uh, over the years, I noticed that when people were shifting, they sold more cassettes than the average genre of music during the late 80s and early 90s. And then as we pivoted in the late 90s to CD only, uh, they turned around. And uh, in the first decade of this century, while everyone started moving to streaming more and more, metal has always lagged. Metalists sold more physical product than most genres of music. Mm-hmm. More loyal fan base. I'm sure you saw what Tool did last year. Maybe you didn't. Oh, uh, I'm not Tool fan, but... Um... Okay, well, Tool, I, I am. Uh, <laughs> maybe it's not hard enough for you. But uh, what Tool did when they put out their release in 2019... Is yeah, they yeah. sold a lot of physical albums in the streaming era, and what they did is they didn't put out a normal CD at thirteen ninety eight, fifteen ninety eight. Mm-hmm. They only put out the deluxe version right, for okay. fifty dollars. Yeah. And their fans, their brand is so strong, mm-hmm. and the fandom that follows a band like Tool is so committed.
0: Yeah,
1: they were number one on the charts. I mean, they they sold. I don't remember the exact number, but to me, it was an almost unfathomable number Mm -hmm. in the year of 2019. And it wasn't a gimmick like you see a band like BTS doing nowadays. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a real fan type of thing. So so metal's different. You know, its fans are more loyal. Uh, They're they're very loyal to the brand. As I said before, when I go to shows, I'd see label T-shirts as much as I'd see the artist T-shirts. Roadrunner being one of the big label uh, brands, obviously. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and their fans are willing to commit. There, there's a thing called ARPU that everyone looks at now, Average Revenue Per User, ARPU. Uh, and uh, what it is is since we're not selling much music anymore, instead now we have to sell them something. And you're going to have the 99 cent fan You're going to have the subscribing fan, and then you're going to have the $150 fan. Oh, okay. And and if we could be on tour, it could even be more than that. Mm -hmm. And you want to sell them merchandise, and you want to sell them almost anything that's... You try to think of unique things you could sell them Mm -hmm. to be able to sustain your career, because you can't sustain your career just on selling music anymore, obviously.
0: No. No. You mentioned one thing earlier in terms of new school versus old school um i'm going to run by you a, a a model roadrunner our direct signing deal and you can tell me in your capacity as um, president of the A2IM whether it would be a viable equitable equitable um outcome these days so a new sign for roadrunner would be 6 to 7 albums usually uh with an option after the second all publishing an IP retained by Roadrunner in perpetuity and an advance of about $5,000, no touring support guaranteed. Usually they'd provide it, but they wouldn't guarantee it in case they got roped into a, a, a shitty tour. Would that be in breach of A2IM's kind of ideal circumstances for the artists these days?
1: A2IM is the American Association of Independent... Music represents independent labels, not artists. Ooh, that's a good answer. <laughs> uh, that said, you all have labels, I don't know if you know, like Secretly Canadian, Jaguar, Bon Iver, do you know who these artists are? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> or, or,
1: or. They tend to treat their artists better than the major labels do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the deal you described to me wouldn't be a roadrunner type deal. That'd be a real indie indie deal. Yeah. It typically wouldn't be six to seven records. It typically would be two to three records. Mm-hmm. Uh, or sometimes even just one record. Although there's then a disincentive to invest marketing if you have no futures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're only offering five, $15,000 advance because that's all they can afford. But the artist being a creative person with no artist team to speak of, backing them up, who's really doing any work, needs some label foundation, because the label does have a staff, to do some of that publicity, to, to make sure the artwork's created. You know, they're just creating the music, so um, I think the independent music label community is certainly kinder than the, uh, the major labels and uh, what you described, I know you know the name is a 360 deal, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, there are 360 deals in the independent community, without question, but those 360 deals wouldn't come with a five or $10,000 advance. Mm-hmm. Those would come out with significantly higher advance, plus the work for doing that, uh, if they took the publishing, you'd have to make sure you're with a real label, mm-hmm. but if you sign with the right independent label, if you do the publishing, they'd have an incentive then to get you a lot of synchronization licenses, to get your music into film and TV and ads yeah, and yeah, yeah. placed somewhere, video games, because they'd be sharing in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'd be an incentive for them to be more involved in your touring and working with your agent. Mm-hmm. Because if they're getting ten or fifteen percent of your touring revenues as defined, not of gross yep. that, that's where a lawyer comes in if you give away fifteen percent of your gross on your tours, you're basically screwed right yep. uh, but but if you give it net. net after well the definitions of gross and net are funny definitions, aren't they yeah. uh, but 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 uh but but uh, you deal with decent people. Yeah. Uh, and, and I like to think the community that I used to represent at A2IM was a decent community. And let me assure you, there's people who I ignored, who I never went to for membership, and there were actually a few who wanted to become members mm-hmm. who I didn't allow to become members because they would have sullied the independent music label brand. Obviously, I won't get into names because I don't feel like being sued. But 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 if someone... Was not reputable. Why would you want them to be part of your club, which yeah. is A2IM is a club? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. One of the things that I was really impressed by when I was listening to you talk about with the A2IM stuff um, is how effectively you can you can rattle off the statistics of that year in terms of market share, export market share, independent music market share, and the kind of the um, the valuation of that industry. Now, my, my question is kind of like, it's a bit of a pithy question because one thing I try and do is I try and really contextualize the Roadrunner story for the time. So I'm trying to figure out where did you get those numbers? I know the RIAA published quite comprehensive reports on the industry, but I'm not sure how where I could find that, that understanding and that data on a European level and a worldwide level.
1: The answer is you probably can't. Uh... In the U.S., what we had—well, number one—have you heard of an organization called Merlin? No. Okay. You, you. So there's A2IM, and then in the U.K. there's AIM. I'm sure you've heard of AIM, AIM, yeah. mm-hmm. which which is uh, the original—not the original original, but the first big. The AIM actually preceded A2IM mm-hmm. by about four or five years. Uh, it was started by a woman named Alison Wenham, who's really terrific. And uh, so she, in addition to starting AIM, started this international network. So we'd get together once a year, uh, typically in New York, and people would come from Australia and Brazil and all around the country, and we'd meet, and we'd formed an organization called WIN, the World Independent Network. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. And then to make sure one of the benefits of being with a music label, as long as we're back there, is it's not a statutory rate that's, that's paid by Spotify. So if each individual little label did a deal, would they get the same deal as uh, Universal Music is getting? No. So the answer is they form Merlin, and Merlin on behalf of all these independent labels that right, decided yeah. to throw their hat in, and then they were able to get saying, okay, well, now we represent X percent of the market. But okay, cool. in, in the U.S., it wasn't so bad because we have Nielsen SoundScan. Now it's MRC. The, the company has changed ownership, Nielsen MRC. And, uh, but even that was controversial, Jim. You did hit a point. We did it not based on distribution, but by master ownership. The majors would okay. claim if they're distributed. So... R.E.D. is now owned by Sony, so they would claim market share for something they don't own. We'd say, no, no, no. Who owns that master at Glassnote that has. Um, oh, okay. Glassnote has uh, Phoenix and what's the big band? Uh, oh. It's a UK band that I can't explain. The name. Uh, Mumford and Son. Right, okay. Mumford & Son and Phoenix and those bands are signed to Glass Note Records. Mm -hmm. So we included them in our market share, even though they were distributed by an arm of uh, Sony Music's independent distribution.
0: Right, okay. So what you're saying is, if I'm going to go out looking for um, some comprehensive data on the music industry in numbers for either this year or reverse years, it might not be a worthwhile venture because... It's currently up for debate exactly where the boundaries are drawn.
1: You should contact... I'll give you another name. I'm I'm giving you too many people to contact. That is fine. I love this. It's great. Contact uh, uh, Merlin. There's a fellow by the name of Jim Mahoney. Jim Mahoney, okay. He's based here in the U.S. If you need his contact information, I'll send it to you. Perfect. But if you contact Jim Mahoney, he can tell you a lot about Merlin Mm -hmm. and how they come up with their market share numbers. Cool. Jim actually... Previously was my number two at uh, A2IM. Right. Okay. When, okay. Uh, when, we, when we grew, there's a lot of incest among these organizations about people moving in and out.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right. I think I think I've, I've milked you dry for education. <laughs> sure. Unless unless there's something you uh, you wanted to cover and I've I've just interrupted your train of thought. Um, no. Is there any? Have you got any memories of Jules while we're here?
1: You know, it, it's funny. Uh, Jules, is a very bright guy. Uh, if you read the articles, you saw I referred to him as an industry character because Jules was a character. Mm. Uh, by the time I got to Jules, so so when Roadrunner started, they were a really uh, bare bones organization of three four people in this country. Uh, They started very small. Doug wasn't with them back then. Holly Lane, as you noted, was, may she rest in peace, nice lady, Mm -hmm. Uh, was one of the starting employees. Doug didn't come in for two or three years. You can clarify that with him. And Jules was doing all the deals, both artist deals as well as the distribution deal. Doug, uh, while not a... uh, Finance person by train, trade you know by education, had an unbelievably sharp business sense. Mm-hmm. So after a while, he started becoming what I call the business affairs portion. So when I negotiated the distribution deal, Jules may have been there or may not have been there. This right, was okay, back yeah. in ninety, but but Doug really knew what the the main parameters were: the six or seven things that were important. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with the artist deals. Doug would have to say, okay, here's the royalty rate we're willing to give them for X number of albums. Here's the advance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the criteria, how much we're going to spend on marketing. And he would actually do a p of what he expected. Jules then would do not the business affairs, the negotiation side, but the contract drafting side. Okay. Uh, always a very fair guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, very ethical. Very smart. mm mm-hmm. But by the time I, I got to really know Jules, it was the second decade of Roadrunner, and uh, he was edging toward retirement. He was almost done at that point. He was yeah, yeah, he yeah. was doing a lot with Holly at Mechanic Records at that point, and we distributed them as well. I mean, we distributed a lot of labels, so I did dealt with Jules not just at Roadrunner, but I dealt with him at other companies as well. Yeah, uh, Someone I always respected, uh, someone I always enjoyed, Case Wessels. Someone I always respected, someone I always enjoyed, a very good guy, very good to his employees, and uh, good to his artists, really cared. Occasionally you go off, you, you alluded in your email about when Roadrunner would change his repertoires and try to expand, and I remember one of the first bands they signed was sort of a punky band. Now, to me, punk is like good punk, like bad religion. Mm-hmm that's good punk to me you may not like punk at all i don't know your music i, I taste. like i
0: like a bit of punk but i'm with you bad religion is good punk
1: right he signed a band called star star here in new york who you never heard of and don't bother looking them up uh yeah that that, that was a pretty lousy record case spent obviously the, the marketing dollars are much more because you're dealing with more commercial radio yeah. as opposed to dealing with sou and metal radio yeah, uh, just the marketing costs exponentially were like three or four times what they would have invested in a metal band. Mm-hmm. And it sold nothing because I hope I've never met the people from star star. I don't even know if they still <laughs> exist 30 years later, but it wasn't very good. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but then of course he had nickel back and made a small fortune. So I guess branching out isn't always a bad thing.
0: Yeah, sure. Sure. I'm kind of intrigued by mechanic, you know, because um, I, I, I remember when I was reading up on obviously Holly Department, I think it was was it Steve Sin. I don't think it was Steve Sinclair, was it who started. Yes it was, yes.
1: I I've got yes. the names
0: right, great. I'm getting it's coming into my memory, it's great. Um The remarkable thing was how they they were with IRD from the go. So as soon as Holly walks out of Roadrunner into Mechanic we've got ourselves like a, a business model that's completely viable with some reputable names behind it Holly and Steve were very well respected in the community at the time but Mechanic didn't really churn out more than say 20 records before it wrapped up over a period of years so I'm kind of intrigued as to how it didn't work out really maybe I'm speaking out of turn I don't know it's, no no
1: no you're not speaking out of turn at all they just their A&R never really uh, were they have Twister Trickster, that, Trickster,
0: Trickster, they had, um,
1: and one other, was it, it violence, violence? Oh, like, Voivode. Void. No. Whatever they, they had, they had Trickster, they, they had some successes and then like often happens with music labels, their A&R went sort of cold and you still have to pay everybody's salaries and you yeah. start losing on every record. And then he got a big influx. I think he went with RCA which sort of you're going full circle to your earlier comment about uh, Epic and uh, Sepultura. RCA really didn't know what to do with Mechanics label. And uh, so this, you know, you give it to the salespeople. The great thing about, I mean, the sales force at IRD was passionate about the music. They weren't just salesmen. Uh, I later, as I told you earlier, worked for Sony Music Distribution. Some of those people it was they could have been selling widgets. I mean, it, it really made no difference. <laughs> you know, they were just selling music, whether they liked it or not. Mm-hmm. The the people at Red for ninety percent of the releases were passionate about the releases. Yeah, really were able to 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 describe them to the people at the the retailers who would bring them in know which ones to push, know which ones not to push, which could get them in trouble because they were mm-hmm. supposed to push everything. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's what happened to uh, Mechanic. They uh, The a the and went sort of cold, and then on top of that, Steve Sinclair may disagree. And actually, the last time I saw Steve Sinclair was at a little get-together we had for Jules after Jules passed away that Holly had set up. Mm. So that was a number of years ago. But, yeah. uh, but but good guy. He's he's no longer lots of people have left the music business. So
0: Yeah, man, that's why we've got to have these conversations so we can gather the knowledge and before he leaves, because I mean one of the big gaps, massive gaps in, in this um story is is the band Carnivore, which is obviously the typo negative predecessor. I yeah. don't know, and I don't think I'll ever know how they got signed, because I reckon Jules was involved. Um and obviously Pete Steele's no longer with us. And in terms of the personnel around, I just don't think there's anyone around to tell that story anymore. The managers that the, the Carnival managers passed away it could be something that's lost to time.
1: When were they signed?
0: Eighty four, I think. Maybe eighty three, and the first album, eighty four.
1: Well, then I'll bet you that you'll be able to find that answer out from here Oh, really?
0: <laughs> well, I'll, uh, when I do loop around to him, I'll. I'll I will ask him. Everyone, anyone who's like directly under the employ of Roadrunner, I do ask that question. It's like a cursory. Just in case, do you know how this happened?
1: So it was fast. great. Case with ty- Typo Negative was the first Roadrunner band to go gold in the United States. Yeah. And Case made a deal as an incentive with the salespeople. He said, if you guys can make this a gold record within the next two years... I'll fly all the salespeople to Amsterdam for a weekend. No way, that's awesome. And they did, and he did. (laughs) Uh, And and, and it was funny, because at that point, originally when he agreed to do it, there were maybe, I'm making up a number, but let's say there were 18 salespeople IRD had branches, you know, there was New York, there was Chicago, there was Atlanta, you know, San Francisco, LA, maybe the 18 salespeople, 20 salesmen, two years label, there were like 36 salespeople. (laughs) And and Case laughed about it with me, but was a very good sport about the whole thing. He said, listen, I, I made the commitment. And he flew everyone over to Amsterdam, and they had a wonderful, you know, they flew over on a Thursday night. They stayed up Friday, Saturday, and late on Sunday, they flew back. And and if you want to know more about the legal side, Doug knows everything. Uh, But another reason he was less involved is Ray Garcia was the uh, inside. Eventually, Roadrunner became so big that they brought a lawyer in on staff, and that was Ray Garcia. Uh, Excellent guy excellent guy uh and, and could probably tell you more stories about jewels than i can although doug could tell you stories about all of them uh but uh ray would definitely be a contact for you
0: definitely just noted his name down that's brilliant yeah the one thing i'm gonna ask doug as well from a, from a distribution standpoint this might be outside of your remit as you will have moved on at this point but as you moved into the 2000s the um the liner notes and the actual packaging for the records gets a lot more you get a lot more bang for your book we stopped we move away from like just little slide in pieces of paper. And now we're getting full booklets with context, lyrics and um artwork and things like that.
1: Uh, at that point, the pendulum had sort of swung from Doug. Well, number one, it, it, that was part of the evolution of the music industry. I don't think that was just Roadrunner. I, I think yeah, everyone yeah. was doing more and more deluxe as we started moving to this ARPU concept that I told you. <laughs> But, but Jonas moved from being the marketing person to being the head person, the president of Roadrunner Records. And Jonas being a marketing person, those things were more important to him. Yeah. Uh, so he was willing to spend your, your extra 10, 20 cents that you described before with your uh, coloring and felt that he'd get a return on his investment on that.
0: Well, he certainly did from me. That was my era. That's where I sunk Good. my pocket money. <laughs>
1: Good. And, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, I wish there were more people like you nowadays uh, for the music industry, because I still have friends who work in it. I, I, I'm, I'm on the other side of uh, midnight at this point. I'm in my <laughs> late 60s at this point. So uh, but I enjoyed being in the industry. I was there. Before that, I was in film. So uh, I, I had a, an interesting career that's enough for me at this point in my life <laughs>
0: yeah i've got uh one more question which i ask everyone and then i'm I'm happy to let you go richard and enjoy the rest of your afternoon um have you ever seen a ghost
1: i don't believe so why no just
0: just i ask i ask everyone and the responses range from yeah i've seen 10 here's three pictures from that evening and all the way to no that's
1: ridiculous." I wouldn't say it's ridiculous, but you know, I've seen images, but I think they were in my mind. Maybe <laughs> I should have eaten those mushrooms, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I don't think I. Uh, I don't believe I've ever seen a ghost. Oh, that's a shame. But but, I, but I'm not that skeptical to say that they. I'm not a. I'm not a. That's absurd. Your your earlier yeah. comments. That's, um, there's still time, then. <laughs> it was a pleasure.
0: Pleasure. Thank you very much, Richard. you. Guys. You
1: as well. Sir.